0: Hello a chhoeso i Academy yr Academi Genedlaethol ar gyfer Ararwynyddiaeth addysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy’n ranannu materion ac arferion arwenyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg ym Hemri Nghymru ac yn Rhymwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales. A podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally.
1: Hello, I'm Charlotte Thomas, Communications Manager at the National Academy for Educational Leadership Wales. This episode features Ben Waits, Consultant Clinical Psychologist and Joint Head of Psychology, Counselling and Arts Therapies, and Dr Adrian Neal. Consultant Clinical Psychologist, Head of Wellbeing for an Adrian Bevan University Health Board. Benna and Adrian's presentation, Leadership for the Pandemic and Beyond, Sustaining Yourselves and Your Systems, explored some lessons from the NHS on how to create sustainable systems using transformational leadership. They shared some of the evidence and models in this area and invited participants to consider the applications to an educational setting. This podcast is from Series 3 of the Leadership Unlocked webinars.
2: Our topic for this morning um, is leadership for the pandemic and beyond, sustaining self and systems. And I think um, if this last year has done anything, um, it's shown us that sustaining ourselves can be deeply challenging, known pressures uh, for all of us like never before. Um, But but there's also a sense, I think, in which the pandemic has rendered these challenges um, visible. They were not non-existent before. So challenges with well-being were something which certainly in health were hugely familiar to us and I'm guessing they were to you in education too. So I'm going to kick off this morning and then hand over to my colleague Adrian. So um, in terms of what we're aiming to do with you this morning, so thinking a bit about the purpose of of leadership, what is the work of leadership, um, particularly in the context of the current challenges we face, we're going to think a bit about the leadership evidence base and share some of that with you um lots of this will be lessons from health and um, i'm going to talk in a moment about the applicability of that to your context and then we're going to finish um uh, with a section on workplace well-being and some of the connections i guess between compassionate leadership and well-being now i'm also um Pushing myself slightly out of my technological comfort zone here, um, I'm going to invite you to participate on a web platform called Menti. So, if you would like to, if you have a smartphone handy uh, and you can engage with it without getting caught up in other things, um, if you'd like to find the Menti website, um, I'll be giving you a code to insert in a few slides' time um, so that you can respond to a couple of questions I'll be posing. So, fingers crossed, we'll be able to show you the results to that as we go through. I guess this is my opening pitch, and I'd welcome any thoughts that you have um, in the chat about some of the similarities between health and education. Um, so although you um, if you've had a chance to read our biographies, you all know that Adrian and I are not void of education based experience. Um, Adrian's a qualified teacher and I was chair of governors through a very challenging time with a um, small rural school. So we know a little about it, but nothing like the kind of richness and depth that you will carry in this field. But I guess some of the things that struck me were that um, we both work in sectors that I think many of us would feel are Um, under-resourced. It feels like there is more we could do. We could do a lot more with more investment, couldn't we? We both work in sectors um, that are target driven and and i guess i'd say more about that which is that sometimes it feels as if the things that get get measured are not always the things that count so it feels like there's lots of the work that we get involved in that takes up our time that that doesn't count in the targets there are multiple socio-demographic challenges that complicate the work that get in the way that make it more difficult we both work in political contexts the impact of the pandemic has been huge for all of us in different ways, I think, but um, has been enormous. And that sense that maintaining the energy and engagement um, and these last two points are linked really um, of our people. So we are utterly dependent on the performance of our people. So, so that feels like a very important issue to be bearing in mind when we think about the kinds of leadership that matter. So. This next slide, um, I'm not going to go through all of these, but I just want you to have a look at it and um, get a sense of whether some of these challenges might be familiar for your role. So so this is something that we use on our leadership training course, um, trying to capture just some of the challenges um, uh, that we are moving in and out of and having to respond to on a daily basis. So I'm hoping that some of these look familiar to you. Now, I wanted to kick off this kind of framing of leadership and what is the work um, with this distinction, which you might have come across before. Um, And I'm going to ask you our first mentee question about that in just a moment. Um, So in leadership, we talk about um, a distinction between transactional leadership. Um, So transactional leadership are um, those leaders that um, it's the work that focuses on the role of supervision the kind of organizational demands and requirements and group performance they're concerned with the status quo the day-to-day progress towards goals if you like it's a kind of operational leadership and then we also talk about transformational leaders so leaders that work to enhance the motivation and engagement of their followers by directing their behavior towards a shared vision so that's a distinction that is often made in the field of leadership. And I guess I was curious from your point of view. So if we move on to uh, this slide, so if you've been able to go to your um, uh, the Menti site, if you can punch in that code, and I think Charlotte's gonna put this code in the chat. Um, uh, so if you punch in the code where it asks for the code, you should get a question which asks you, is leadership in education mainly transactional, mainly transformational, or a bit of both. So we'd be interested to know um, which you think is the most predominant kind of approach to leadership in education. So we've got, um, uh, that's really helpful, thank you. And well done to the 45 um, of you that were able to vote. So so there's a sense that it is um, a bit of both and rightly so, absolutely rightly so. Um, that's interesting that there are some people who who so there's a difference there, um, but that's really heartening, actually, um, that you're recognizing the kind of transformational elements of your work, because there is lots in this presentation that will be concerned with the transformational elements of leadership. Um, really important um, to be holding that bit of it in mind. The operational stuff is clearly absolutely crucial to her teacher roles, um, uh, to, to many of us in leadership positions. So in terms of what kind of leadership we should be um, using, we need to think about the models that will help your system perform at its best at a time of significant challenge, and which models might be predictive of improved individual and organisational well-being. And, and the crucial thing here is remembering that what we're dealing with, we need to be getting the best out of our human resources. So thinking about what's what what evidence we can bring towards thinking about how we might do that. And often it's interesting. So so compassion is often associated with really a sense that it's a kind of fluffy, nice to have thing. And I'm hoping that over the course of this presentation, you will have a sense um, that actually it's, there's a huge evidence base supporting this work in terms of it being the best way of getting your systems performing. So one of our favourite studies in this area was um, a study done by Beverly Alamo Metcalf. Um, she's based at the University of Sheffield uh, and surveyed a whole range of teams in the north of England. It's a study based in health, but it's about team performance um, and it feels like it potentially has quite a lot to teach us. So there's lots that we like about it. It was, a, it, it was Done over quite a long, it was a longitudinal study um, over three years, it was prospective. Um, they gathered lots of data, they had a really good uh, lots of data and they had a really good sample size. So um, it's a well-designed study for us to be drawing on. So one of the things that they found, um, uh, or the various findings that emerged from the study, were um, they looked at leaders who were, who had lots of experience and competencies, the kind of traditional competencies, you know that might relate. So so, um, years of experience, qualifications, that kind of thing. And they also looked at the kind of behaviours that these leaders were reported to show in um, their work. And and that was based, I won't go into the detail of the methodology, but a range of what they called engaging. And we can use the terms engaging and transformational interchangeably. So in terms of positive attitudes in teams to work, um, they found that Competencies were partially predictive of those, but engaging behaviours predicted all of them. In terms of teams' well being at work, Again, competencies predicted some of those, but engaging behaviours were predicted all. And crucially, in terms of performance, so in terms of en- achievement of targets, competencies did not predict any of those. There was not a relationship between those, but engaging behaviours had a causal influence. So when you looked over time, an increase in engaging behaviours would cause an increase in performance. So I want to tell you a bit more about what those engaging behaviours were. So you'll see here, this is the model that they designed. So um, they've grouped these various behaviours into engaging individuals, engaging the organisation, moving forward together, and personal qualities and core values. So um, uh, that's the way they design their model. If you have a look on the next slide, this is those same features. Um, uh, listed, um, uh, so listed out. Now, all of these things are important. So in that data that you just, those results that you just saw, all of these things will have been contributing to those results. However, when they did a big factor analysis, what they found was that there was one of these um, that uh, had more, had, had a, accounted for more of the variance than any of the others. So there was one, they all matter, but there was one that was particularly important. And that brings me on to my next mentee question. So if you go back to your um, uh, to the mentee site, um, Charlotte will put that code in the chat. Um, and um, you should um, be able to see um, these. So, so on the mentee site, you should have this list. Uh, of, of um, leadership behaviours. So I'd like you just to have a bit of a think about which one you think might have been the most important. Um, uh, now, in fact, you might, there, there are two, the, the Menti site only allows us 12 and there are 14 of these. So we took out two to make it a bit easier for you. Um, so I'm just going to reshare my... So there are your results. A lovely spread, which is what we often see. So our leading is uh, building shared vision. It's lovely. So really interesting spread. And none of those are wrong in that they all matter. However, the really interesting thing, and well done to those of you, um, our second place is actually the correct answer. Um, So the really interesting thing is that this one here, so showing genuine concern, was actually the one that was most predictive. And I guess what I find fascinating um, uh, about that particular information is that it's possibly one of the most fundamental human qualities, isn't it? The showing of genuine concern that for me felt like a bit of a, a bit of an epiphany. That sense that the stuff that I did as a leader that I thought was me doing me being a human being and then I needed to get on with my leadership work. For me, that felt really important that the genuine concern to our colleagues and to our staff is one of the key ingredients in successful leadership. I guess the other thing is that that genuine concern is often some of the stuff so, so those things often get sapped by the pressure and the volume of work so, so being clear That those things, those behaviours really matter in terms of how our systems perform. Um, Feels like it's helpful. Doesn't mean we'll always be able to do it, but it feels helpful to know that those are important and those are priority. I'm going to fly through this bit of context. So this is material taken from a draft document. It's a really, I couldn't, I I would recommend it to you very highly. So this is about Compassionate Leadership Principles for Health and Social Care in Wales. And they've done a fantastic job, both of setting out a vision and a workforce strategy, but also of pulling together some of the evidence around compassion. So you'll see these are very busy. um, uh, One of the things... Um, the, the evidence in, in column two here is, I think, extraordinary in terms of the power um, of compassion. So, so, you know, diabetes management, end of life care, the kind of differences. You know, if a pharmaceutical company could get their hand on this, hands on this stuff, they would, they would, you know, they'll be, they would be all over it and making lots of money from it. They're really potent effects. And if you look in, in column four, the impact of compassion on well-being and motivation is huge. Um, and then finally, in column five, I wanted just to flag so that sense of compassionate leaders being more protected from the effects of burnout. So I suppose what this kind of pulling together of evidence suggests. There's a lovely book as well called Compassionomics. Um, I can send, I'll forward the reference for that. But but just the economic case for compassion. So it's not just nice to have. It's not just the right thing to do. Um, it also seems to have a huge Um, impact. There's not a huge amount of evidence for this in education, but our sense is that it's really, you know, these feel like they're very transferable um, bits of evidence and data. So, again this document um you've got this this nice compass here which is making the point about um the various elements of compassionate behavior so just to be really clear that of course in compassion as well as empathizing um there's also a a motivation to alleviate the suffering um of others so the kind of helping the uh, so so attending understanding empathizing and helping um so i'm i'm gonna whiz through um because we have lots Um, to cover but I just wanted to make you aware of that bit of context and a sense that education so although this is not explicitly about education this document it feels as if that might be a direction that we might want to move in in terms of education having something to say about compassionate leadership so what's the kind of culture that we want to be creating now For us, the core conditions, and there's so much we could say about this, but we would want to create cultures where people feel psychologically safe. Now, there's a whole field around psychological safety, but that's about feeling that you can speak up with questions, concerns, issues, where people have a strong sense of affiliation, support and value, where there's compassion between colleagues where hierarchy, all of us, the health service is highly hierarchical um, and my sense is education is too, but the sense that that is as minimised as possible in terms of our communication between colleagues so that that's as open as it can be. Clarity of purpose, role and expectations. A sense wherever possible of shared or collective leadership. Stepping towards rather than away from distress. You know, there are times when we need to have difficult conversations with people. so, So having the courage to do that. And a sense of being able to focus on the team and, and team process so that, there's, that we can build cooperation. So I guess for me, there's something important about understanding compassion and well-being. So it's the evidence would suggest that compassionate leadership is absolutely associated with the well-being of staff that are led. But being a compassionate leader also involves being attending to our own self-care and well-being. So I guess in terms of the next bit of our talk, I'm handing over to Adrian so that he can... Tell you a bit more about well-being and share our understanding um, of that area. So summarising so far, it's important to consider transformational and whether we so so we might call that transformational or compassionate or engaging leadership in addition to transactional approaches. And fantastic that your sense is that already in education that that's going on. Um, uh, that's great. So compassionate leadership absolutely supports the well-being of the workforce, but also the performance of the workforce. And the evidence supports this as being the best way to maximise performance, but we need to understand what workplace well-being is. So, Adrian, I'm going to hand over to you at this point.
3: Thank you, Benna. Borodaw, everybody. Good morning. So just picking up from Benna, uh, so what we'd like you to think about is the relationship between leadership and well-being uh, as being like a, a kind of overlocking Venn diagram that the two are absolutely connected, and I think Ben is, I guess, sharing of information has, has made that absolutely clear. What What would be really helpful now is for us to start to think more specifically, um, using an evidence base, uh, which is fairly robust now, as to what we actually mean by well-being, because it's it's a fairly vague, nebulous term, and you know there there are um, well, let's just say there are lots of different uh, takes on well-being at the moment. So so our take is particularly focused on psychosocial well-being. So not necessarily physical well-being, but obviously we can, we can bring that in. Um, and not necessarily on health, but more to do with the experience of work. But of course, you have to have a shared definition and agreement as to what well-being means for you and your colleagues. Otherwise, you're, you know, people on different pages. But we also need to understand well what are the conditions which will allow us to create, to foster, to grow this thing that we want to to um, to kind of support, which we know is fundamental for uh, our sustainability of our systems. So really, that's what I'm going to start talking about. So I guess you'll have gathered from the focus on leadership that actually you know the, the the humanness, if you like, and not wanting to sound like a fluffy psychologist, but the science of human relational interaction is incredibly powerful and now we have a, a decent evidence base to say actually it's not just about being nice to each other it's about how our relationships form support and sustain and what we use within uh, certainly within iron bevan is a a kind of multiple framed model but it, we, we frame it as a relational model uh, and the relationships uh, are with yourself with your work with your colleagues um, and with the organisation. And if you think about, you know, what we do, we, we are, you know, we are relationship-forming machines. We we make relationships and attachments to everything, not just the human things. I'm sure all of you have inanimate objects in your lives you have uh, affection for, which uh, makes no sense. But we we connect to things around us. So that's incredibly important to hold on to. And if you use that relational kind of sense, and, of course, relationships, Relational, in the sense that it's relationship to yourself as well, the intrapersonal. It gives you a really helpful frame for thinking. Well, what really is well-being? And what I'll do now is talk through some of the more recent models that help you see what what are the what are the ingredients. So I wanted to share this with you first. So um, this is a, a quote from Dame Carol Black, who's a, a, a absolute leader in the field, Um, but she contributed, I was involved in the parliamentary review, which created a healthy Wales, which Ben referenced earlier as a a key health and social care document. But essentially it's saying, look, the, the, the health and wellbeing outcomes are so much dependent upon the quality of your relationships at work, particularly the relationship between the manager, the leader, and those that report to them or work under them. It is absolutely central and really that's what we call culture that is the cultural mechanism which sets up the working environment so just stepping back and doing this slightly at pace when i talk to my colleagues uh, in our in our health board and we we have about 15 16000 people across a whole range of professional groups i i try to help them understand well-being as ingredients and that actually we know what the core ingredients are actually for each person. It's slightly different. So the recipe is slightly different, but actually we know what the core cornerstones are. And, you know, there are multiple models for well-being. but actually, if you look at the best evidence ones, they all have a similarity. There's an overlap. So I'm going to show you a couple of those models just to give you some confidence that we, we do know what we're talking about. And there is an evidence there and it's fairly contemporary. So in this model, so this is a collection of three different, uh, uh, um, fairly contemporary papers. What we have is four cornerstones, if you like, of psychosocial wellbeing. Um, we've got the emotional dimension, which really is about that balance between pleasure, enjoyment, satisfaction, and distress, discomfort, stress, anxiety. It's that sense of how you feel daily. And of course that moves daily. But we know that if you were to kind of, you know, if you were to get a bit obsessional and to monitor how you felt each day and then look at it in a chart, Uh, over a year you'd see massive variation but you'd know that if it was in proportion uh, or over time disproportionately shifting towards the the uh, the distress or discomfort that would have a negative impact on your well-being so we're just saying work has to give you some pleasure we know it can be demanding but on the whole it has to give you more good stuff than bad and equally so your life has to give you slightly more good stuff than 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 the, the negative or the discomfort And we're we're massively flexible. We can cope with the pain, but too much for too long. And it causes us problems. So it's about that kind of balance of those those that the affect of our life. The next category, the psychological, so slightly different construct. But this is talking about, you know, do we have a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of identity in our work? You know, within education, a bit like health, people tend not to join their work or engage in their career because they they want kind of fame notoriety or or you know a a new rolls royce they are driven by values They, they do this because it's meaningful to them now if you can sustain that that's incredibly helpful if you can't sustain that well then you're in the territory of moral distress you're in the territory of that kind of incongruence of your values and it starts to cause problems. And, you know, your sense of control is implicated in this section as well. So these are really important constructs. But, you know, we could spend a day just talking about that category in its own right. Uh, the, the next uh, um, category is really about the kind of, although I didn't say I talked about physical aspects, it was keen to reference health. Now oh, Actually, a lot of the recent models around well-being say you can be perfectly, you can have really good well-being, and even if you're managing chronic ill health. So the key there is, can you maintain a functionality that will allow you to sustain the type of lifestyle that you you want to? Now, I always say, well, this usually explains why a lot of professional sports people, or rather why a disproportionate amount of professional sports people, if they're injured or if they retire, develop problems, because you see that the dissonance open up between what they can do, what they want to do, because it's so much wrapped around their social world and their, their sense of who they are. So from a physical point of view, illness is not the problem. It's the dissonance between the illness causing a problem with you, you being able to function in the way which you want. Uh, and lastly, and last the, the social aspects. Now, pretty much every, re- every model of well-being over the last 10 years references some form of social need. And they're all slightly different. Now, this particular model, I think it's really helpful because it's more about fit. Rather than saying you have to have X amount of connections in this kind of way, it says, look, the fit for you is the key thing. If it fits your needs, then it's important and it should be utterly idiosyncratic. So this model comes from, uh, it's been recently kind of dusted off. It's an old psychological model. It's about 30 years old, uh, but it has been kind of dusted off and kind of uh, rebadged by the king's fund which is a, a key think tank for health and social care um, and, and it's you know nicely been reframed as an abc model which is always always helpful um, it talks about the need for autonomy control belonging and competence now you can already see the congruence some of these themes of the previous model so this is talking about what you might need in the workplace to to sustain your well-being and, and we can we'll, we'll come to these themes a little bit later on as well i suspect in the q and a's so I, I, I'm moving away from models, and I just wanted to touch on some things that you will recognise, I think, very closely. These are experiences of work which we tend to talk about a lot but don't really understand. So the idea of burnout, so the, the burnout really was coined as a phrase in the 70s by, by an American academic called Christine Maslach. But really it talks about the idea of being physically and emotionally tired, knackered, essentially, and actually it it really refers to it as a, a disconnection a, a process of gradual disconnection from what's important to you but also what's important to to your work and you can imagine what the um, the consequences of that are so the the picture on the 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 uh, side there is just something that i think for me slightly dark humored way of illustrating the idea that many of us are functioning but something's different, something, some spark is not there. To me, that is burnout, that the sense of my enjoyment is reduced, my capacity to really fully engage. In, and if, if this is you and you're a leader, you're in trouble, because we know that engagement is absolutely paramount, both emotional engagement, but also cognitive engagement in your work. This is another slide relating to engagement, but it's just a simple way of helping you see the kind of different manifestations, if you like, of, that sense of burnout so the middle column really is what we like to think about is that the the you know the sweet spot this is when both ourselves and our colleagues are in the zone we're enjoying work we 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 kind of we're connected um and this is really in my eyes the objective of leadership is to keep people and yourself in this center zone but all too often we shift we either end up being emotionally overloaded uh, and some people kind of go that way for some reason that they 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 may kind of um overconnect and you know you might see people overreacting and kind of ha- having high expressed emotion in incongruent places or being very prickly, or they go the other way in which case they disconnect switch off become kind of you get the glaze or you get that kind of disinvolved mask wearing. Um, which is protective. These things are protective mechanisms to protect you from something deeply discomfort, uncomfortable, but isn't necessarily diagnostic or clinical. This is not an illness. This is a state of being. Now, even the original research in the 70s identified burnout is not a product or not, a, not necessarily related to an individual or their, their psychological makeup or resources, but more to do with their experience of work. So Maslach sees burnout as a work-based problem. So we could all end up being burnt out in the wrong conditions. Obviously, we have a responsibility there, but all too often the demands of the work surround us and corner us before we know where we are. So we've got a couple of minutes left. Um, so that's, that's the theory bit, if you like, regarding leadership and, and well-being. As as we said, there's a lot there, so hopefully there's a lot more to discuss. We wanted now just to flag something that Ben and I are, are uh, closely involved in, uh, within our health board, so this is our attempt to establish a leadership program um, for clinicians, but also for uh, uh, for people involved in in third sector work um, within Gwent to combat essentially uh, a burnout, to promote what we think is the most uh, more adaptive forms of leadership, uh, and to create more sustainable systems. Um, this is just a, a, a slide from our kind of um, uh, information sharing it, but you can kind of see the logic there you know if you can engage people you can improve experiences you can create better outcomes I think that that model if you like has absolute bearing on on the education world details regarding the the program um, I won't go into absolute details but other than to say it's a year-long course it's very much a partnership operation Um, we now have five years and five cohorts so we have an alumni group Um, which is surprisingly robust, which tells us a lot. It's well-evaluated, and we know that actually we have improvements in both how people function in the systems, but also function themselves. So we have improvements, evidence improvements in self-compassion, which, to be honest, as a clinician, is a minor miracle because that is incredibly difficult to change in anyone. And typically people that go into value-based careers – tend to be better at looking after others than themselves. It's a bit of a cliche, but there is an evidence base around it. Um, so if you can try to change the balance, we think we have a method for helping that. And I think that's incredibly useful uh, given that sustainability really is the, is the key. Okay, so there's just two slides left. This one really is just saying, um, giving some context as to the work that Benner and I have been asked to, to engage with for, for yourselves. We know we're going to be developing a uh, what we're calling an insight piece, which is really a kind of um, a vision strategy document, looking to support the needs of head teachers with regards to leadership wellbeing. Um, we know we may be able to draw a lot of our learning experiences, and we know that, in, in a sense, the agenda is open. That this is an area of, of you know importance. Again, because it's fundamental to sustainability of yourselves and your system. So we will be involved in work going
2: forward. Can I just add to that, Adrian, just very briefly, that, that we're hoping that that work will be absolutely grounded in your views and thoughts and contributions so so it will be supported by an advisory group there will be conversations taking place with yourself so we're very keen to look at how some of the evidence that we're talking about and there's lots more evidence how that connects up and where the points of applicability might be to education so i just wanted to kind of add that in
3: thanks so so going in so obviously we're going into breakout groups now what we'd like you to think about okay so don't think about this as as necessarily setting you tasks that need to be reported back in a more operational way we just want you to think about these three questions so we want you to think about how does this material we've shared with you this morning at pace um, how does it relate to you in as a leader sustaining your staff which bits are relevant how does this relate to you sustaining yourself and what do you need from the wider system to try to make this all doable and not just doable for the next six months or six weeks or a year, doable for the rest of your careers. Now, that's quite a daunting thought. It's, it's a significant amount to chew on. So I suspect take those questions, go into your groups. That Those aren't the only questions you can consider. Uh, we're really keen to then bring it back in the QA afterwards and we can do our best to to help shape your thinking and to consider questions that we've really not considered.
4: Welcome back, everyone. We've got around just just around about half an hour to put our questions to Benner and Adrian to make the best use of the time. We're going to start actually with Joe Kudd. So if you're there, Joe, I thought your work was fascinating. So my question is, I
5: read I read about your, uh, your employer experience framework. And I think there's a really good opportunity here to do some joint work on that uh, to establish a post covid baseline across schools in Wales. So my question is: Do you two think as
3: um, it's, it's a model we could apply in a school setting?
2: Thank you, Joe. Adrian, do you want to pick that up?
3: Um, sure. Joe. Just checking. Um, so the the employee experience framework uh, is is that referenced? Uh, did you see that in reference in the slides, or have you been doing some digging and found something else somewhere else? I- I've been pursuing you on the internet. <laughs> Brilliant! All right.
5: <laughs> I, I couldn't get the PDF on the um, what it, the care care spaces and care circles.
3: Brilliant! No, we know what you're talking about now. That's perfect. So I can definitely talk to that question. So, um, employee experience framework. Uh, so that came about. Uh, so I'll give you some context, and I'll I'll answer your question more specifically because it's important. M- my director said, "Oh, can we have a um, a, a strategy for well-being wellbeing?" Um, and engagement and uh, i just kind of glazed over because strategies just get written and die don't they they just go on the shelf and policies so i said i'd I'd much rather have something we could use a bit like a trojan horse that actually helps us shape the thinking of our managers but also helps us create conditions that will allow us to really give this a chance to grow so um some colleagues from uh, organization development in a b and i designed this so it's it's a, a, um, a framework based upon six core principles, um, and the core principles you'll recognise come out the literature I've shared with you yeah. today. Um, you know, there, there's overlap. There's the, there's the HSE stress audit tool actually is based upon a model called the six principle model. It's it's they're all very similar. But basically, yeah. we have identified six core conditions that um, if you get well, one is idiosyncrasy in the scale because it's not formalised as psychometric. Um, but it just has good naturalistic validity in that we this makes sense it does. Um, I think it 's a really useful tool to use in in uh, personal reviews with people, but actually you could scale it up um, a- and use it in in systems um, and it 's a simple personal report across six core conditions um, you know things like, i can 't remember the ball which is embarrassing, but things like control fairness safety. You know,
2: yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and if I can just um, add to that. So I think your idea is really interesting, Joe. I really like the, the notion of um, checking in with our workforce um, around those conditions. Certainly when we've done previous surveys of the workforce, it's shown up some stuff, some stuff we might expect, like um, people don't feel they have very much control over their workplace environment, which I think in a kind of busy public sector organisation is not surprising. But some other stuff like not feeling very valued that might be stuff that through our approach to kind of systems and leadership we might be able to impact upon so i think it's a really interesting idea and we can certainly think about it thank you
5: great well, i'd like to um, move you on that okay yeah. i think it's great i think it's really good
2: great thank you i can thank you for being conscientious enough to go out and do some digging i um, appreciate that um,
4: yeah thank you thank, thanks joe uh, the our next question comes from l l pete
2: Hi, thank you. Um, so our question was, how do we slow down the whole system to create a space that focuses on well-being? It's a lovely question, l Thank you. Shall I start on that, Adrian? Is that OK? Um, and then hand over to you. So a couple of thoughts, really. Feels like we move at 100 miles an hour, doesn't it? So, so actually trying to create those spaces. So one of the things that has emerged from some of the compassion based research is that One of the reasons often that doctors will cite, for example, around not being more compassionate is they're terrified it's just going to take loads of time. That sense that that actually it will just overwhelm them. And lots of the evidence comparing compassionate interventions with treatment as usual is very carefully manages the time. So essentially it's possible to be more compassionate in the same amount of time. So in your interactions. Um, so, So that's the first thing to say. It doesn't necessarily involve masses more time. However, what we found is that quite small, so protecting quite small amounts of time for different kinds of conversations can often be very powerful. So there are a couple of tools that we use in our system, which I won't talk about in detail. So one of them is Schwartz Rounds, which is a kind of well-being focused conversation where people tell stories about stuff that's impacted them. And then there's a general discussion. Um, so that takes an hour um we rotate those around our hospitals so busy clinicians come in their lunch hour and it's really powerful people talk about it for months afterwards we have another um uh approach called taking care giving care rounds um and actually i'll send out some information there's now a, a, a website that launched yesterday actually called compression practices which is a whole range of things that you can use with teams so trying to have a different kind of conversation with people and our experience of doing that with busy nhs teams is that you do that for an hour and and not always. So sometimes it's a bigger process, but often that changes the way that those systems operate. People connect with each other differently. It it, it shifts things relationally. So I think there are ways that you can do it, but we absolutely um, recognise that challenge with time and overwhelm. Adrian, do you want to pick that up?
3: Yeah, I mean, overlapping. it's, it's I guess it's the it's a paradox, isn't it? You, you you need to be given permission to create more space, but the the priorities of those at a different level or in a different system don't seem congruent I I, you know, I don't have an answer because I guess one would be well how do you convince those the other to change their behaviour you know one would, and then you think well okay what's driving their behaviour and, and sometimes it's just not thinking um, sometimes it's their agendas because that's what they're being asked and it kind of gets being filtered down you know performance driven cultures tend to be like that, nobody really thinks about the impact of asking for it. They just that becomes their business. But we also know that people that are threatened or feel threatened tend to kind of look at process and detail more. So, so that might well be happening from above, and that they just push you more because they're they're freaking out. Um, what I've tended to find is more effective in having that argument changing people's minds as to. I guess, making them aware of the impact of, of their priorities on you is to flag the um, that it doesn't make a lot of good business sense. So in order to get a wellbeing agenda, I guess, closer to our top table and the health board, um, we've talked the language changes subtly away from um, mental health and more towards performance and sustainability and errors. And all the stuff that actually they're very concerned about, I'm concerned as well. But it's you're helping them understand the mechanics of why you want to, them to change or slow down. But that's a, that's a long game because it's a bit like trying to change the direction of a you know oil tanker. It takes ages, um, and, and I, I mean I haven't succeeded in that at all. Um, you know, bit by bit, um, it, it's very hard to change performance-driven cultures that are very uh, process based you can create as Ben was saying, you can create space in a unauthorized way in a sense, in that you may not be given chance to slow down, but you can maybe change the way you work subtly to help create space because sometimes that pressure you know w- when you're on the hamster wheel, it doesn't really lend itself to creative thinking you know it, it, there are opportunities that may be exploitable that you may not realize in the gaps in between what you've got already
2: and, and just as an example of that um you know some of our some of our leaders will um think about when you when you're having a meeting you know how might you begin that meeting yeah. what what might you start off with might you give 10 minutes of your agenda to just having a slightly different conversation you know some sort of check-in um uh, and those are things that we can we can potentially flesh out more um in the insight piece but let's make some space for some other questions damien back to you
4: Thank you. Thank, thank you, Al. We're going to go to Simon Roberts next.
5: Uh, thank you. Um, firstly, thank you. Really insightful um, comments this morning. I think it's really useful to hear from other sectors um, outside of education about similar issues. And, and we spent a long time in our group talking about a range of uh, topics and, and looking at the well-being of both our staff and ourselves. And, and we were looking at self um, in particular and wondering, following on from what um, Al said there about about finding space sometimes but space to offload um our own ex- our own anxieties and, and what the role of coaching perhaps is within that um within our system and whether that was something that you use uh, in the nhs um and, and how, how effective that might be
2: lovely thank you um simon i'll hand over to you in a moment adrian but so just to say that Um, on our leadership course one of the key components of that is one-to-one coaching mentoring Um, and that feels like a really important space for leaders to just be working through some of the stuff they do so so my sense about it is it's enormously useful and again the power of creating you know an hour and some of our leaders are checking in you know every two or three months it's really not a lot of time Um, some people use it more frequently than that Um, but the power of just creating some space to think with someone else, I think, is is um, extraordinary. So, um, yeah, Adrian, I don't know if you've got anything you want to add to that, but I'd absolutely support that notion of that being a valuable, a, a valuable thing to have in your system.
3: No, I agree. Um, what, what what the literature says is that actually a lot of the causes of of um, of let's say unhelpful stress and pressure uh, is not necessarily the the kind of um, uh, 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 the interactive part of the work. So for clinicians, doing the clinical work is not necessarily the problem. They enjoy it. That's what they're there for. I suspect teachers is the same. Actually, it's the secondary stresses. It's the bureaucracy. It's the processes. It's all the added bits, you know, the drive to work, the ability to park, all that stuff accumulates. Now, what they are also finding is that um, in order to mitigate that, some of these things cannot be changed, but you absolutely... Um, there's value in developing your psychosocial peer resources so support, if the group is more cohesive if there's space for them to to experience where each other's you know where they're at the power of normalization the power of hearing each other's stories um however you do that and there's many ways to do that um whether you formalize it whether you just make sure that everyone gets a break once you know and there's opportunities to meet i think absolutely so coaching would form part of that repertoire of i'd say kind of a social support um whether it's professional focused or or personal focused i don't think it really matters if if those resources are there it will help
2: absolutely and and other examples of that so coaching absolutely but um there's also sort of more peer-based approaches so triads so a notion that that you know you and two other colleagues might meet and take it in turns to share issues Um, we also use action learning sets as part um, of our course so people bringing issues in groups of six and sharing some kind of problem solving and some thinking around that so there are different ways of creating that space to think coaching would absolutely be one of those but there are kind of other options so thank you Simon for your question.
5: Thank you I think some of our concerns were around non-judgmental conversations that it could include the wider sector at times, but, you know, an opportunity to, you know, just to, to discuss those, because often we get vacuous comments towards us saying, everything all right? And often the person who asks it doesn't really want to. <laughs> really want an answer. No, it's awful, and I want to tell you about it. And they, they just want you to go, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, great. No, yeah. But anyway, th- thank no, you for thank that. You. Great, thank you.
2: Yeah, the, va- the value of really good quality listening, actually, is is often underestimated. Psychology, there's a notion that Um, that space one of the key functions of it is restorative and i often feel like that rest restorative conversations are really lacking in the wider system so kind of how we might create spaces for people to feel restored in some way to be able to offload and and share and unburden i i couldn't agree more i think it's really important
3: thank you just add to a last bit there so so um one of the, I think, one of the problems, and there's a very strong parallel between health and education, is that our systems, there's been, there's very little slack, there's very little space to manoeuvre, um, time-wise, energy-wise. It's, it's all been kind of used, and as a result, um, you, you're functioning above capacity more than you should. There's illusions of what level of capacity you should be functioning at, um, which bear no resemblance to reality. So you know the idea that people have to perform at 100% um, is absurd. You know, actually, our our capacity to function is far lower and, and far more variable than we than we uh, really appreciate. So we've just built out slack and that expectation that we need space to to um, to process, to think, to breathe, to restore, um, and a social context is really helpful for that.
4: Janet, I might be surprising Janet Haywood now. We're, we're hoping to come to you, Janet, so you can elaborate on what you've put in the chat.
1: I am. I am. I, I love a surprise, Damien. So, um, <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, really enjoyed um, the presentation, I have to say, first of all, thank you both. Um, really good to take some time to reflect um I love being in my breakout group with with Rill particularly. You were all lovely, but Rill, their SLT, whatever they do, they do it with kindness. And that's their SLT motto. And I think it that that is something really quite special to carry. So I'll be holding on to that. Well, one of the things um that That we've been doing it in in Caddickson and in a lot of schools across the vale and and in Tunis and other local authorities is the trauma informed um diploma, so trauma informed practitioner diploma, and a few of us have finished that now and And the big requirement that comes out of that is is that supervision is absolutely there. But also what what I'm trying to get my head around and and you've answered it to some extent, I think. But what is the real difference between coaching and supervision?
2: Thank you, um, Janet. And thank you also for your feedback. That's lovely. And I'm so glad your conversation in small groups was helpful. That's beautiful. Doing doing everything with kindness. You can't go far wrong if that's your guiding principle, can you? Um, So... So I guess just thinking a bit about the trauma-informed um, schools initiative. So I'm not familiar with exactly what's covered in that course but I know um, so in Gwent we have a um, the Gwent Attachment Service does a lot of work with um, public sector partners including education um, to sustain them in being trauma-informed so they they do a lot of that kind of work which I guess is very similar to Um, the course that you're talking about and i know that the key part of that work is you know this work is hard it's really tough and it's really easy to get to that point so so those that burnout model or, or that kind of sense of disengaged or overwhelmed or depersonalized that adrian described it's really easy to get to that place if you're not careful so what do you need to build into your system so that staff can keep connected can keep Going back in and being connected to the um, to colleagues and to young people um, now I think what that looks like very often so it's often very helpful to have an understanding of trauma and, and of the issues that we've talked about but it looks like the kind of space that we were actually just talking about in the previous Question. So, so a space where you feel able to offload and share the stuff that's impacted on you. Share, share, kind of emotionally how that was for you. Um, And and I kind of, you know, Adrian, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. But I, but but there's a bit of me that thinks so long as you have that space, and I think you can create it with supervision. I think you can create it with coaching. I think you can create it with so, so the triads that I was talking about, I think there are many ways actually that you can serve that function. I think the key is creating the space that, has, that is guided by particular principles. So those would be things like non-judgmental, confidential, um, uh, you know, an appreciative space for you to for you to be sharing stuff so so we could get into the detail of of the differences between you know supervision and coaching there are some technical kind of um definition details but in terms of i think the function that you're asking about janet um my sense is that that there's real that that you can kind of interchange um uh, a whole range of methods to serve that function would be my gut feeling adrian don't know if there's anything you want to add no
3: i I mean i completely agree I, i guess it's all So for me, there are some absolutely kind of the key differences between, say, mentoring, uh, uh, coaching, supervision. Um, But actually, those differ. Even within the health service, those differ uh, between professional groups. So you speak to a nurse about supervision and they kind of go cold and they think because it feels like a a management supervision. But you speak to a psychologist about supervision. And in my eyes, that would be a developmental, uh, um, reflective opportunity, not necessarily about... Uh, accountability or governance but helpful so I think it's you you cut your cloth accordingly I guess and and to some degree I don't think it really matters what you call it as long as its purpose supports what you're trying to do so if the purpose is quality and governance then it probably needs to be clear and expectations that it's a kind of more supervisory management type of thing Um, if this is about somebody's career development and they're looking to you as a an experienced kind of senior, then it's more mentoring um, because they're looking for your experience. If um, they're looking to be kind of supported and helped, um, but don't necessarily want you to give them the answers, that's coaching in my books. So, it's, you know, there is some flexibility. But to me, they're all psychosocial resources, and there are many more which um, you deploy depending on the, the task at hand. Thank you.
1: That's really helpful because... I think we're trying to find our way through this, and and sometimes within one conversation, you're doing all three things at the same time. And yeah, you? yeah. So, yeah. so it, it's it's then I suppose putting that correct label on it, and and recognizing that that's what it is.
3: And it's who wants the label as well? Yeah, yeah. Is it because you've got to say we giving we giving our stuff this thing, or is it between? in the group this is what this means you know that that's the label the group needs you know so it's there's a narrative around it but also there's an organizational need to you know i guess to get it right but
2: And, and i think you're right janet that actually sometimes um actually you know i think there are times when you might weave in and out of various functions um but the key is making sure that that fundamental function of of you know restoring yourself of sustaining yourself that there is a place in the system where that gets that need gets met um uh and it might be that if you're working in a system where that's fairly absent that you might start off with quite formally defined spaces for it but but you know over time it might be that that embeds more in the kinds of conversations you might be routinely having so yeah
4: thanks thanks janet thanks for (laughs) the surprise Um, we're going to ask tanya ricard to come in now and if there's time after tanya we've got another question from joe hopefully so thanks Tanya.
6: We spoke a lot in our group really about um, uh, how the system will come back and look at the impact of this pandemic on on us as leaders in school and how will they support our emotional well-being long term and how they will recognise that although our footprints right now are quite deep in the sand, as time goes on, those footprints fade and You know, will there still be that recognition from the wider system, from the inspectorate, from our challenge advisors who, you know, let's be honest, they've not walked in our shoes at all. And, you know, already early on, we're having pressures put on us. You know, have you done your performance management, for instance? Well, you know, I'm sure I speak for a lot. Performance management is a long way off my thought processes right now. So how do we ensure in the long term they continue to recognize the impact of this is not washed away quite that quickly that's
3: ask, such
2: but... a great question
3: yeah no do you want to do you want to jump in adrian yeah so um danny thank you really um absolutely spot on so what what my biggest fear from the health system but i sure there's parallels to your systems is that very soon we are going to be asked to get back to business as normal. Um, and, and there's a logic to that, but it is absolutely worrying that there will be an impact because of that desire for the machine to get moving again. Um, so I've, and this is just a personal experience. My department's currently being audited, um, which, Benny will know, has an- irritated me immensely because the timing is terrible. Um, we are not out the pandemic yet but already the the machine is starting to ask the same question so so I'm I'm in the same boat Um, my advice would be and memory is terrible so six months people will not remember where you guys are now so I would actually say you probably need to take a much more uh, rigorous empirical position with this and start to measure get a baseline now um, because you can one then use it going forward but it'll evidence where you're at and actually that type of evidence would be much harder to um to argue with so it's if it and that's you know numbers are often what uh, powers the machine isn't it so if there is tangible evidence of that you're let's just say your organizational or well-being now one you can measure it in a year's time and then two years time but two you've got some tangible evidence to say where you're at and I'm, I'm planning to do that within the health board in various places because we absolutely have to keep track on this because very soon it's going to be business as usual and and no one's going to be giving us space because um, so many other competing demands will kick in. So I hope that helps, just a very, very parallel experience.
2: And I guess just kind of building on that, and, and I suppose I'm thinking um, in terms of, options for measuring so thinking about joe's point earlier about something like the staff experience framework it sounds like you've previously done um a survey that that could be redone so so you might want to think together with the academy about a strategy for for measuring some of that but i'd absolutely agree Um, your question tanya reminded me of a um, blog actually which i'll i'll try and find and it'll it'll come after this event but hopefully can be emailed out to you um, so Michael West who's um, hugely informed our work around um, work in the health service around well-being and engagement um, he wrote a blog that starts with a quote from an A&E consultant saying um, after the first wave um, uh, the leadership of the trust um, uh, messaged all staff to thank us profusely for what we had done and then stated the expectation that we would be going back to business as usual and we were absolutely we were flabbergasted we couldn't believe what we were reading that that sense of the mismatch between oh you you know that's all done now Uh, My huge hope, so I mentioned at the very beginning of the talk about the way that the pandemic has rendered visible things which actually many of us could see previously, but but it has brought it into the kind of national discourse, if you like. Inequality is probably being the biggest, most significant one of those. But employee experience, employee well-being feels like it's absolutely another one of those. People have realised that it's not just a given, that you can just keep going and going and going. And my profound and sincere hope is that we keep that focus, that we maintain that focus way beyond the end of the pandemic because it really matters it mattered before the evidence was telling us you know before the pandemic we had the highest levels of staff off sick with stress than we'd ever had before you know it's it's we know it matters so um so i quite agree how do we um how do we sustain that focus i think it's a very important thing to be raising
4: just
3: one more thing um i'm my narrative is now that we are trying to sustain a recovery we're in a recovery phase now, um, even though there will be a few more bumps along the road. But it's a seven—it's a five to seven year recovery time frame. Um, and I'm, that's what I'm telling everybody, including our execs and those at Welsh Government that will listen. So I think that might be helpful as well is to put some time around the numbers saying, look, business is usually not really I can see the pressure, but we need to manage expectations across a much longer time frame than they may expect. Um,
6: yeah, yeah, thank you. That really, really helps. Um, and I completely agree. And that message needs to be spread widely and in um, Sharpie pen, perhaps.
4: OK, thanks, Tanya. Right. I am going to ask us if we can go to Joe and this will be our last question. We've got about two minutes. I think it's about more practical May I not want to steal Joe's thunder about what someone could do with the, our experience in burnout. So, Joe, are you there? And my question is, we're in, in the discussion uh, with colleagues, um, we just, well, one of the things, I
5: just,
3: it's a personal thing, but what do you do if you do burnout? I can take that, but if you want to yeah. kick off.
2: No, go for, it. go for it.
3: All right, brilliant. So I, I guess the thing is, I mean, it, it's not a... It's, so burnout is not a clinical syndrome, so it's important to distinguish... Um, with the person, um, what is it they're experiencing? So, th- so in the literature, it says burnout is a uh, um, almost an inevitable response to the pressures of the working environment. So, it's really helpful to understand that rather than seeing it as a a failure of the individual. Mm, okay. you, you contextualize the experience by making sense of it. Then you help them understand well what what has led them to this point because. You know, it's a bit like doing a, a root cause analysis. You can work backwards trying to see, OK, well, uh, how have you got here? And it won't have been over the last two days. You know, it'll be over the last few years, but there'll be a number of key events that have pushed them. But they'll all be demand related. Now, um, the, the, the issue is that they won't all be work related, I suspect, because that, the whole the mythology of work-life balance is exactly that. There our more- lives and our work don't stop. They blend. Okay. So, you know, there's this kind of um, a, a, a seesawing between the the value and resources home and work bring. Uh, basically, if both go pear-shaped, you're in trouble. And inevitably, that's what happens. Um, all work becomes just unbelievably unbearable, and then that tips home life. So, So I would encourage them to start kind of thinking about, you know, in a bit more of an analytical way, how they've got there, rather than... They failed somehow because that could be that's just toxic if you go down that route. and they'll work it out. Um, then it, it's about redesigning their work, understanding what is it they might need, because it might be that the key to their particular burnout is their loss of purpose and meaning. Now yeah. you know, you're into moral distress and injury territory there which um, is really important to acknowledge. It's not irrecoverable, but it does require probably a, quite a fundamental rethinking of what you're doing. So I, I've worked with a lot of clinicians that have changed specialties, have changed areas that have gone sideways in their careers or paused things. You know, I, I tried to t- encourage people not to leave their work, but because it's a waste, but to help them think about where else they might want. Where else can they get their resources from? What might bring them pleasure? What might help them feel more meaningful about what they're doing? Um, is it the pace of the work? Is it the fact that they're actually they're working in a massively invalidating environment and they need some validation? So I break it down and work out what are the psychosocial stresses that are causing that? So a really helpful psychological model is called the job demand resource model. Um, It's by a a Dutch uh, occupational psychologist called Bakker. Google it. He's got a website and all the resources are free, which is really helpful. It's a really, really interesting model that talks about this. It's balance between managing the demands of work and if they go wrong, burnout is an inevitable consequence. But because it's so idiosyncratic, you've got to understand the individual, the individual's position.
2: Can I add to that? So, so, um, Adrian, this is making me think a bit about the model we have in our organisation around individual reactive responses to well-being, And I guess in that I would put, you know, the need to, you know, the need for someone to seek, have access to kind of counselling or therapy. So our employee wellbeing um, service has a kind of part of it that that provides one to one support in that way. And that's really important. You know, there are times when people tip over into um, states of depression or anxiety and it starts to really impact. So I think it's important in your system to to know how to signpost people to get that kind of support. But very often what you see is that that being all the well-being offer that there is, you know, that or maybe some kind of, you know, go off and do some mindfulness or some yoga or, you know, th- so, so that sense that it's an individual approach. What we really like to think about, and I hope that's come out um, from our from what we've said this morning, is is proactive or preventative systemic interventions so it relates a little bit to and and that's absolutely what adrian was talking to you about you know some of those things that might so so adrian was talking i guess about some of the kind of proactive individual things you might do around that person's job their job plan their experience at work um but some of the kind of systemic things are are what i was touching on earlier so um you know how you how you create group spaces that might be more focused on wellbeing. Sharon's question actually that we didn't get to I think was really trying to touch on that. How you know so how might you create structures of supervision so that all of your staff have a space or a point of contact where they know they can go for supervision or um, coaching or something that that creates a space for them to be restored. Um, so so I guess, um, yeah, just just doing some of that thinking and being aware that the solution is sometimes about responding to the individual and meeting their individual needs. But but often it's about building systems that prevent people getting to that point.
4: Thanks. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Ben and agent, um, and, and, you know, that link to the, the the graph you showed earlier about showing genuine concern as well um, as yeah. it links closely with that. OK, so that, that was our last question. So I'm going to, we're going to invite you now to, to sum up for us. So I'll hand over to you. So thanks for that. I think we
3: both uh, deliberately didn't prepare anything because we just wanted to see where we went with this. This is uncharted territory for us. Um, but actually, it's not uncharted territory at all. It, it's it's uh, the discussion we've had and the Q&A and the feedback actually reminds me uh, of something I did about three weeks ago um, which was a, a consultant physician um, workshop is now workshop. The questions are the same, which is absolutely fascinating, which again, strengthens my confidence that we can be useful. Um, but the processes are the same. The causative factors that our st- people are struggling with are very similar. You strip away the language. It's a similar human process or similar psychological process rather so in in many ways the 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 ways forward and I I don't want to say solutions because I think that's it's too complex to think of solutions but ways of managing and and moving in a direction which is more helpful very much lay in our experience of uh, of leadership and of creating cultures that will proactively support well-being of, of getting the reactive support right and doing it in a way which is appropriate and, and, and getting the right people involved at the right time, but it is so much about building systems that are sustainable in a not just a performance, uh, both a, a you know a desired outcome route, fiscal sustainability, but also in, in the the ability of the people to enjoy, thrive. Thrive is important. Work should not just be about functioning. There should be some element of pleasure and joy in thriving, which might seem a bit, uh, right now to you guys, a bit unrealistic, but it it should be. Work should be a health, a protective factor for your general health. It should not be a factor that undermines your health. And then the link to well-being and health is as obvious. So uh, I guess, specifics aside, we've probably not been able to answer all your questions exactly, but I think we've probably given you enough to see the relevance between our worlds Um, because the theory stands up I think Um, yeah I think I've run out of things to say (laughs)
2: <laughs> thank you thank you adrian and, and i guess i i want to um just pick up on where this sits in the work that we're being invited to do with the national leadership academy um because this was a beginning in a sense um and, and i guess it felt like quite an important beginning because there was always that possibility that we'd come along and talk to you and it wouldn't feel at all relevant so so i, I guess i feel very heartened um this morning that um it feels like it resonates for you which is what we were hoping um, but but i think there's a really amazing opportunity it feels as if strategically things are lining up around this being an agenda that needs to be taken forward um, so so the the next step we're hoping is for us to work on this insight piece which we'll be seeking um input on um, uh, so that will be a kind of summary of the research evidence a scoping of some of the ideas and possibilities of things that we might um take forward so so that feels like an amazing opportunity to be really highlighting some of these things but my sense is that nationally the profession in wales is being asked to consider this agenda that's the exciting thing that it, it we are not swimming against the tide here we are absolutely um you know talking about stuff that people arguably slightly you know you could argue that it would have been great to be doing this kind of earlier um uh but fantastic to be starting out and and in a way, what better time when the system has been as as knocked um, as it has been um by the last year, as you know the point you made Tanya so clearly you know what a hugely challenging year it 's been for everybody, um, so we hope that over the course of the next few months the kind of time frame for that is kind of um so we're talking about a four months comment. so so you know hopefully by the summer we might have something that's starting to scope out what this looks like um what some of the kind of core principles might be uh what some of the provision might be from um the national academy so so we're really excited to see what emerges but i hope um i hope you know, it's it feels like a watch this space kind of finishing point because um, uh, there is there there absolutely will be things happening, um, so that feels exciting. Um, but thank you so much. It's been so you know it's been lovely to hear your questions and have your input. Um, uh, really delighted to have been invited to join you this morning. So
0: thank you. Academy <laughs> Spotify. Podled Apple na Google a fiduch bithta kotli We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.